0: I guess we can go ahead and get started. I'm going to try to keep this to about an hour. Uh, for those of you not actively speaking, maybe we can just keep this muted. Uh, but I uh, just want to give a little background on what microeconomics is all about. So this is an extension of our one podcast at Carbon. Carbon is an impact investment group focused on creating economies in a box by essentially taking uh, proven businesses and we create carbon copies of those and we take them around the world to address consistent problems across humanity, and our main focus is on education, empowerment, and resources. Uh, I myself am a co-founder and managing partner of Carbon. I've spent about 20 years in the alternative investment space and emerging growth operations and advisory. Uh, In the wake of COVID-19, we thought we'd do a little something special here, um, given that we're all forced to be in situations that we never intended, and especially on this topic of mental health. Uh, You know, we're all forced to kind of converge our lives of working from home uh, and and taking those two environments that are normally separate and merging them into one. You know, businesses are toppling left and right. Job losses are unprecedented. um, Already stressed marriages are on the verge of total collapse and students and children are not used to isolation and they're kind of bursting at the seam. And last, uh, most importantly, I think, you know, those that are in abusive situations are basically trapped. So to address some of these topics and understand how best to cope, treat, manage this process, we've got a couple of special guests on. I'll let them introduce themselves, but we have uh, Dr. Lou Baptista, who's Vice Chair of Clinical Services at Columbia Medical. We have Adam Freeman from Post-Acute Recovery Solutions and Barb Paradiso, who's Director of the Center and Program on Domestic Violence at the School and Public Affairs at the University of uh, Colorado. I don't know if we have Joe Schrank. He's the president and founder of Remedy Recovery. But I'll let uh, Lou, maybe if you want to start out, give a little bit about your background, then we'll go
1: to Adam and Barb. Sure, thanks for um, inviting me. Happy to have this conversation with you guys. So uh, I'm a psychiatrist, uh, a child psychiatrist. Uh, I trained in adult psychiatry in in Miami at Jackson Miller Hospital. Then I went to Boston for a children's uh, hospital in Boston, did my training in child psychiatry and then was there as an attending for eight years and came down to Columbia uh, almost 12 years ago. So I'm currently the, the clinical vice chair, so I'm responsible to oversee the clinical programs uh, at Columbia and at University in, in New York Presbyterian Hospital on the psychiatry side. So uh, both adult and child, so we have traditional uh, hospital-based services, inpatient units and you know, outpatients, uh, uh, emergency you know, services. And then we have what we call the faculty practices, which are operated by the university, uh, and uh, they serve a different population. And our practices are primarily located in Midtown Manhattan, and serves mostly uh, you know, middle class. We have a, you know, mostly still self-pay. And on the hospital side, we're serving the Washington Heights community, which is primarily Hispanic and, and Medicaid population.
0: Excellent, thanks for that. Uh, Adam, you wanna go?
2: And Eric.
3: Yeah, uh, first of all, in the category of I'm looking for something positive everywhere, I'm a huge Met fan. And I want you to know that uh, the Mets are undefeated year to date. So uh, I'm taking I'm looking for positive and I got one. Um, My name is Adam Freeman. I am the uh, chairman of the board of post acute recovery. I have uh, my son, although you need to understand there's absolutely no nepotism here. But Eric has built a company focused on outpatient substance use and mental health support. And I think if there's one message we want to deliver today, it's that as anxiety rises in the global community, um, it's anxiety that can't be addressed with action. And so substance users and those with mental health issues tend to exacerbate that the intensity of that anxiety. And it, it often uh, causes users to go back and users to continue to use. So we're happy to, not happy, we are delighted uh, to be part of this if we can help find some solutions that, um, that we can pro- promulgate out to the, uh, uh, to the general
0: public. No, thank you so much for that. And then uh, Barb?
4: Um, so good afternoon everybody. My name is Barbara Paradiso and I direct a Center on Domestic Violence at the University of Colorado Denver. We're an academic research and service center that's been around for about 20 years. And I have been doing domestic and sexual violence work for much longer than that, (laughs) for better or for worse, in a variety of different ways. Um, this, uh, this pandemic presents very, um, very unique and serious challenges to survivors of uh, domestic and sexual violence, domestic violence in particular. Um, As Shane was saying earlier, the stay at home orders are causing people to be locked into their homes, essentially with their abuser and um, as tensions escalate. I understand what you're saying, Adam, that this is really um, a a tremendous recipe for violence and and many forms of uh, mental health concerns
2: to rise. Thank you for that. I think we also have Joe on as well. Um, Yeah, I'm Joe Schrank. I'm a clinical social worker for many years, worked in chemical dependencies in a bunch of different capacities. Um, And I I write a lot. I started a website called called The Fix, which I'm no longer involved with. And I edited a new website, which is all about addiction and recovery. And um, I will echo what we've heard so far. I think it's a It's a recipe for lots of things that happen when people abuse um, alcohol or other substances. I think that we often forget alcohol and how damaging and dangerous it is. Um, And people are in the house and, you know, tensions are high and fear is high and lots and lots of things that fuel mental health. So we don't really know mental health problems. We don't really know the long-term repercussions of what we're seeing, but I'm seeing a lot of people in acute crisis um, I'm seeing a lot of people who have relapsed. I'm seeing people who are not able to, to maintain their recovery, whatever that's going to look like for them. So we'll just have to see and do the best we can. And just, I always put it out there. I'm happy to see any combat vet pro bono. It's a hard population to engage, but if anybody, any of them want to contact me, I'm more than happy to, to do what I can.
0: So why don't we go ahead and kind of kick off, because you know, one thing that's kind of on the forefront is you know, today we want to focus on a couple of key areas that go below the surface, because you know we hear a lot of things in the media of you know, get your exercise, eat right, do all those things. Um, I want to go a little bit uh, deeper than that and really get to the heart of these matters. So I'd like to start out the conversation by talking about who's the highest at risk, what variables do they most need to be aware of, how best to manage through, and what treatment options are currently available. Um, so I don't know if who wants to kind of kick off, but I, I just want to kind of focus on going from high risk then to kind of maybe who are on the cusp and experiencing things at home that uh, should be made aware of. I,
1: I think it depends of uh, you know, uh, where you look, right? I, I think we can think about you know, the most vulnerable prior to COVID, right? And then you put this layer of uh, you know, crisis of unpredictability and perceived loss and losses and, you know, and the potential for isolation. I mean, all the ingredients that can just, you know, push people, you know, in the edge. So certainly, you know, we'll be looking to people they already had vulnerabilities and might have lost some of their usual, you know, coping strategies or support systems and access, you know, during this time, for sure. Uh, you know, we have certainly, you know, a population that I'm very involved right now are, you know, the healthcare workers. Uh, There's no doubt. And this is not exactly, you know, uh, same as 9-11, you know, but there are a lot of similarities. I think the magnitude of death that they're seeing right now, I mean, I can speak for my hospital. We had to put a program together for these people here. Uh, the ICUs and the, the emergency rooms have never seen as much death as they're you know uh, facing right now. And, and they're devastated. The nurses, the physicians, the amount of grief and trauma that they are starting to experience is really enormous. And now they're also taking care of physicians and nurses that are on ventilators. So now you have your colleagues, you're taking care of your colleagues. So you're trying to do your work Uh, you know, uh, enduring this level of loss and stress and grief, uh, you know, and also in the back of your head, I might be the next one. So it's a, it's a, a, you know, it's an enormous amount of, you know, uh, distress and there will be long lasting consequences, right? I think the trauma will have long lasting consequences. And a lot of people will develop PTSD, it will develop Know, generalized anxiety disorder or depression, uh, you know, substance use would be exacerbated or started. So I think certainly the healthcare worker population, especially on the front lines, will be, you know, be vulnerable as well. You know, I'll certainly let, you know, uh, my peers, you know, uh, on, on this call to mention on their areas of expertise, or have more expertise than I do in terms of domestic violence and, and, and addiction. So, uh, you know, I think it would be great to have your perspective, but I can certainly highlight at least those, you know, those two populations.
5: This is Eric Freeman speaking. So, one of the things that my dad uh, didn't mention is that we specialize in treating the veteran and first responder populations. And so, something that we've been doing for the past few years with police departments, fire departments, EMTs throughout the nation is something called solution focused brief treatment. And essentially, what that's for. Uh, it's to assist during a crisis or after a crisis so that uh, individuals that might have had their coping strategies taxed, uh, be able to process what they're going through so that they can process in a healthy way and and build that resiliency. And so what we're seeing now is actually, and sadly, something very similar to combat stress. And that's something that you would never imagine would be in the United States. But we have uh, psychologists that specialize in combat stress that were in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, that was their career. And now they are providing the same type of combat stress to the first responder populations, healthcare workers, emergency professionals, even public uh, transportation employees. But So anybody who's on the front lines of this crisis is going through a trauma. And the cri- the ability to manage that this crisis, manage the stress through the crisis is going to be crucial to the long-term mental health effects of themselves and their families. Because uh, you also got to remember, too, that unlike combat stress, where on a deployment, your family's safe at home, now people go wake up in the uh, in the morning, they go to work, and they have to
0: worry that they're going to bring the silent enemy home at the end of the night. So, so touch more on that real quick. Would you, the, the whole concept of combat stress, like what are some ways or signs to know whether you're under that situation and kind of what are some best practices to either raise awareness that that's what's going on or how to even cope with it?
5: Yeah, so the, the best thing to do uh, is what we believe, we believe the best thing to do is solution-focused brief treatment. So first is to have access to services where somebody can speak if they need to, but also to have a warm referral. Uh, but th- you're gonna start seeing uh, heightened anxiety, depression, hypervigilance, ultimately leading to carelessness Inability to to speak, to uh, mumbling, and inability to perform their mission, and so really, what it's very hard to look for in someone else. Uh, The most obviously, if if things progress to the point where they need somebody needs help, that's obvious. But it's really for individuals to know and feel empowered that they should seek some sort of counseling to speak about what they're going through, because uh, the solution focused therapy that I'm speaking about isn't traditional psychotherapy. We don't get into the past. We don't ask about their childhood traumas. They're, it's literally a here and now using their strengths and their, and their uh, whatever they've built on historically to move forward and address near-term immediate issues and crises so that they can continue tr- helping people. So you got to remember uh, it's mission-focused uh, people out there and we need them to accomplish their mission because the fewer of them, the fewer of us.
3: Can I just add that if it's not obvious, this is not an in person, face to face uh, meeting and uh, experience. This is through telemedicine, either through a Zoom vehicle or by phone. It is a national program that we've launched. And I don't mean to, uh, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but this is an action oriented solution. Uh, people will have different levels of stress and different levels of need. Our uh, All of our clinicians are uh, focused on getting the the patient, getting the client to the point where they are aware of what they're doing and why and getting them comfortable that they are doing the best that they can do and and provide what you would think of as a long-term safety net so they can contact us again. They can bring their peers in, they could recommend to others that they seek help. This is very much blocking and tackling right now.
0: Extremely helpful. Joe Barb?
4: Well, Shane, can I jump in here? I'm just really interested um, in what uh, Adam might have to say around the potential of um, violence escalating and the relationships of the people that you're working with. Um, One of the reasons why I'm asking is that when we're We're hearing a lot about um, calls to law enforcement increasing, you know, anywhere from 7% to 27% in some communities, even higher. Um, And what I'm also hearing from some of those law enforcement organizations is that they're getting a different kind of call. So it's not necessarily um, people who have called law enforcement in the past, have... Been identified as uh, uh, violent relationships where the violence has been going on for a while and perhaps it's just escalating but relationships where perhaps or at least the people involved in those relationships are reporting that it hasn't happened in the past or at least it hasn't become physical in the past and those so there's just some some question floating around in my mind about about just the really high level of anxiety that people are feeling and concern and fear about the future and what and how we might be um, acting out with the people that we love around that.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's definitely exactly what you just said we are seeing as well. So, something that we do is we treat the family as well, it's a core part of our treatment program. And so, a family member can reach out uh, it, without a patient or prospective patient. And so we're getting a lot of that, of how to cope, uh, especially with trauma and first responders, police officers, firefighters who are living in recovery uh, with PTSD, um, that they are getting their their triggers everywhere and they are acting out and what to do and how to help. And you're exactly right. Unfortunately, what's different about this trauma and this crisis that we're in is is that it's ongoing. It's unknown, it's silent, it could creep up anywhere and attack. And that is, uh, if a psychiatrist could think of the worst thing for uh, triggering someone's PTS, it would be exactly what we're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So, And that doesn't even have to be PTS, somebody who's had a trauma before. So w- we unfortunately are seeing a, a significant increase um, in poor reactions to the stress and anxiety that's
4: mm-hmm.
5: on.
3: I just, said, Barbara, I think that the average call that we receive, the average outreach we receive, is from someone in distress, urgent distress. If we really were all collectively um, truly successful, we would get the call before it became a distress, and if there was any way to encourage the general population to educate themselves in advance of a stress moment, that would be even better for them because then you could loop the whole family in and do a family uh, uh, program that hopefully diffuses some of the intensity of the individuality that people are suffering without sharing.
0: Have you you seen any good resources doing that, bringing that education to the forefront that you'd recommend? We're trying. Yeah.
3: we're trying—the—the uh, the concern that most people have is everybody seems to be drinking from a fire hose, Shane. And so, what's the priority? The priority is the squeaky wheel. It's not the other three wheels that are working fine or seem to be working fine. So, I—you I, I, know—Eric and I were talking about this uh, earlier this morning with uh, uh, one of our partners. This is not going to end, meaning this being the stressor stressors and the um, propensity to to reuse will not end when the economy starts to tick back up and when we have a vaccine for covid this is this is going to be latent possibly for years and so the more you are able to ground roots educate and sensitize people the more we
0: have a positive impact long-term? Yeah, I I think just given the odds here, right, I think most people are apt to to feel this impact of mental health issues around them directly in their own family before they might actually get faced with the virus. I mean, just the way it's playing out right now. um, I know people are actually kind of, you know, at their limits with some things. Like Joe, I guess one interesting thing I'd love to get your opinion on is on the early treatment side for people who are just stepping in, maybe um, just going to that, you know, we're just at that first AA meeting maybe a month ago. Now the bottom's kind of dropped out on a lot of things, including that support network that was there, at least physically. Um, What are you seeing in in terms of ways to kind of build that back up or
2: how are people fixing that need? Well, I don't know that they are fixing that need. I mean, I think it's a very difficult situation. This platform has been pretty good. There's a lot of online meetings. There's a lot of opportunity to connect. Um, this kind of suspended in animation type um, environment is never good for people who are who are in recovery. Uh, we know that from even when they are on vacation or out of their routine in any way, they're very vulnerable. My concern is, um, always for people who are not medicated properly. you know, There's a lot of young people who are fresh out of treatment and they're not given the right medication or the maintenance or agonist therapies. And so they're very vulnerable to overdosing in that particular state. So there's a lot of ways to end isolation. There's a lot of ways to, um, you know, it's very hard when isolation is sort of the nemesis of any recovering person, certainly of the newly recovering person. And then they're told to isolate or they're told to not leave the house. Uh, That's an additional layer for sure. Um, You know, I don't know that we have ever really addressed addiction and recovery as a public health issue. It's always been criminalized or it's a, um, you know, it's a behavioral modification puzzle for people. This could maybe there's a silver lining and maybe we're going to be more open to treating people as patients and not criminals, which is one of the things that I certainly hope for. You know, when people drink, everything rises. Domestic violence being one of the things. Um, Sexual assault. Um, uh, Accidents. You know, everything is worse when people drink. So, uh, and you know, I I was just at the grocery store and the young guy in front of me was buying a big bottle of vodka and some um, potato chips. Like, okay. (laughs) that's what's going on. I mean, yes, it's an anecdotal um, sort of thing, but you know, you just kind of wonder what's happening. It also feels like, I don't know, You you move through life and you kind of get relieved when Thanksgiving dinner is over so you can go home and be in your own space. And when people are sort of forced to be together and there's no going home, it can be very, very, very stressful for sure. So I encourage people, I always encourage physical movement. I think that's tremendously helpful if anybody can do that. Um, you know, if you're still in a place where you can take walks or, you know, our mayor here in Los Angeles is says that's fine. So, you know, there's a lot of people doing that. I think that that's helpful. I kind of think we're just playing jazz here. We're just trying to get through. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about cannabis, which Okay. I mean, look, if it's a choice, if you're going to choose between alcohol and cannabis, take cannabis every every day of the week, you know, it's perfectly legal where we are. And the governor says that the dispensaries are um, um, essential. So, you know, in my view, if we're just trying to get through, if it's going to end up being drunk violence, maybe this is the time to practice harm reduction and not cessation of all you know, drug use. You know, I know that's a very unpopular thing to say, but not everybody is best served by total abstinence.
0: And, and is there like a protocol that you can recommend of certain things to maybe start that weaning process? I mean, I also wonder too, is there a dietary route to this, a nutritional
2: route that can well, aid- absolutely. I mean, look, yeah. there are people who are physically dependent on alcohol and they are in medical peril if they decide to stop. So we don't want those folks taking up a hospital bed, nor do we want them hurting themselves. So we don't really want anybody to try to um, self-detox. That's never a good idea. If somebody isn't physically dependent on alcohol and they are, um, you know, they're not ready to not have any form of intoxication or relief. And they can choose between alcohol or cannabis my recommendation is we'll take the cannabis you know that's going to dial everybody's anxiety down the moral idea of it or the long-term repercussions for recovery or those sort of implications are larger questions for sure Um, but i'm a social worker you know first and foremost i can't practice 12-step evangelical philosophy i have to be a social worker and in times of crisis we try to recommend what people can get through safely one of the things we know is that um domestic violence doesn't seem to rise with the use of cannabis you know i mean okay so that's pretty good thing for sure i'm very sure it rises with distilled spirits last thing we need is people sitting around the house drinking um and entering into even for folks where it's never actually tipped into physical violence it could you know very well could and so that's one of the things i mean I'm, i'm kind of trying to well how can we all get through this and if we have to address issues at a deeper level you know we can do that and that's but this is probably not the time. Any, any
0: other things like around uh, predisposed conditions that uh, kind of lead to a faster onset uh, that people should be aware of you know how do they track that is, is there some hereditary things? For, su- for substance misuse? Yeah substance even distress
2: anxiety. Yep. There's probably absolutely. A lot of, here. of course, of course, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm such an advocate to frame mental health as health is because of the genetic component. If we have children, they need to know their health history. If there's hypertension in the family, if there are certain cancers in the family, they need to be informed of that. If there's mental illness, whether it's some range of um, bipolarity or who knows, they need to know that in the same way without shame. They need factual information. So Hereditary and genetics is a very large component with mental health. You know, we kind of tend to forget that, Um, you know, stress, peer group matters, environment matters, interruption in the experience with the same sex parent matters. So if you're a boy and your father is if whatever, death, incarceration, divorce, whatever the situation is. So there's lots of predictive qualities of how people will tip into impairment. The popular philosophy is any use of any substance is inherently crime or pathology, and that's not necessarily true. And so one of the things that happens is we lose the people who are really in need. Um, So look, there are situational, uh, and again, I get, I I don't know why I always get um, in trouble for research, but... (laughs) In Vietnam, there were a lot of people who were using heroin and then when they were pulled out of that traumatic situation, they never used heroin again. So we don't really know who's developing chronic problems or if there is, if this is a situational thing for people at this particular time because of the ac- acute stress and trauma. Um, you know, look, addictions are very individual. as individual as your thumbprint. People are gonna get better in different ways. People are gonna find solutions in different ways. Um, And I just think that we need to be mindful of that specifically in this time. Like this is not the time to go Nancy Reagan, just say no. You know, that's not not what this, we're not gonna be successful doing that. I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, it
0: does. And then like (laughs) Lou, I guess one question I have. So if I'm a young person, if I'm stuck at home from college, you know, what's the best way for some of these kids to chat with their parents, find out the history, you know, just vocalize some of the concerns they might have if they're being stressed or frustrated, how to surface some of these yeah. issues.
2: Well, speaking of stressed uh, kids home from college, I think I have one upstairs I hear him rattling around up there. But um, look, I think that, that all, all policy with mental health is going to be successful to the degree to which we're gonna be honest about that, whether that's for a country, a school, a community, or a family. And facts matter and factual information matters, you know, and I just told a um, nephew who was very, he was like, oh, you know, I feel, I don't know, maybe I should get a gun. I was like, no, no, you should not. Because guns, shranks and alcohol do not mix well. Like, like, you've got to look at the family history. This is not a good idea in any way, shape or form. So I think that that it's look we always have to have candid and somewhat uncomfortable conversations with our children and our family and i think you know it's it's a very important thing to say to them here's the risks that you're taking you're taking a big risk because of the family history of alcoholism and the family history of mental illness so when you do these you need to understand the risks that you're taking the same way we don't want kids to smoke. We don't want them to be uh, to have a poor diet. We don't want them to be inert, you know. on all of the things. It's a little different to say, well, you can't be, you can't have a sedentary lifestyle because we have hypertension and type two diabetes in the family. So it's sort of the same thing with mental health. I'm always an advocate for parity of mental and physical health. And I'll stop with this one. But I turned 50, and it was a series of humiliations and battery of tests and screenings um but no one ever said well gee you're a you're a middle-aged white guy that's an incredibly high incidence of suicide we need to do a mental health screening on you too you know so i don't think we ever really pay enough attention to it um maybe in times of crisis but that's always been one of our messages is mental health is a chronic issue, it shouldn't be addressed only in acuity. And that's one of our big things, Even though we're seeing this spike now, maybe it's a portal into paying more attention in a maintenance way as well.
0: And Lou, I don't know if you uh, have anything to add to that, just basically you see a lot of kids as patients.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think nowadays I'm seeing probably more the parents, but certainly, you know, um, the adults, the healthcare workers here and the system, but something that you know that Joe said is that, uh, you know, thinking, I think we have to think about, okay, this is the situation now, uh, you know, it has rocked our world for sure, and there'll be long lasting effects, but we have to think where the puck will be down the line, and where is the opportunity, right, you know, so uh, certainly we know, let's say, if we go back to 9-11, there was, you know, it was, was a lot of money that was infused for mental health, right? I think helps with the stigma. I think there's a lot of you know uh, appreciation of the need. So there is an opportunity again, you know, with the crisis, right? To uh, you know to further our altruistic agenda. But we have to think about where the field will be six months from now. It's not going to be the same. You know, I can give you examples that, you know, and I'm sure many of you guys uh, went through the same, you know, experience. So, uh, you know, four, four weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, and now our business is completely different. We had been really trying to, uh, you know, uh, push the, tele- the telehealth and the video visits very strongly. And there was always a lot of resistance, right, from the system, a lot of red tape, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, you know, legacy in terms of, uh, you know, the clinicians don't feel uncomfortable. So, you know, there's also the belief, the business component that everybody has to be on site every day, everybody has to put their hours in. And, you know, uh, in three weeks, our 100% of our outpatient operations are video visits. And we are exactly the same volume that we were three weeks ago, doing everything through video including our intensive outpatient programs. We have, you know, uh, a day program in MeTown. We have an intensive outpatient program for DBT for adults. Those are large groups, you know, on a daily basis that has been successfully transitioned and maintained, you know, and growing on video and would probably take us three years in, a, in normal circumstances to, you know, to go around the corner. So I think a lot of, you know, uh, stuff is happening now and down the line we we can go back so where, where's the opportunity as we debunking a lot of you know uh, false beliefs around you know the limitations of providing evidence-based effective care through video uh you know we don't need all the employees on site every day that gives them more time flexibility and better work-life balance and that solves a lot of space issues As we're trying to grow in the traditional way with bricks and mortar and hiring more people so there's a lot of things you know that i think we're rethinking the way we're doing and even in the hospital you know because so people are getting sick a lot so we all had to be ready for short of a workforce so we implemented telehealth in our emergency room we have our consultation service providing consultation the psychiatrist is at home, the patient's in the room and our iPad and wheels goes in. So we're doing telehealth throughout the system very effectively in a way that will take a long time, you know, for us to get there. So the field will has changed and it will be in a very different place, you know, a several months from now.
0: Yeah, I guess there's a uh, silver linings to everything, right? I think that's a perfect example of how innovation and technology, when when forced to it, can leapfrog a lot of red tape. Unfortunately, I guess on, on the other end of the spectrum, right? So if you have, let's just say you have parents who, you know, really can't hide the addiction that they might have anymore. So whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, you know, now they're in more of a closed environment and maybe the truths are revealed. And I guess the same could be for some of their kids, right? That maybe they're home from school, you know, they don't know how to shut off. Um, they're constantly on, they don't have any real way of decompressing and other, I'd say personas, but other traits are coming out. Um, are you guys seeing any of that? Um, in some of the therapy sessions that you're dealing with and what's some of the advice you're giving to combat that? Okay.
6: So I think I want to drive in a little bit here. Um, I just I'm going to give a little background by myself. Um, I was listening to Lou earlier, who's a social worker. I, I do have a social work background. Um, I worked for, in the Toronto Mental Health uh, and Addictions Hospital for several years. Um, and then I moved on. And I'm listening to the conversation was going on in the States. Um, I currently live in Toronto, but I have um, a history with the mental health uh, background with youth and families. Um, so I feel that I can probably add something to the discussion here with regards to where I see identification should be placed for us. Um, I'm hearing about like, where are the areas that should be focused on in terms of alleviating stress? And I heard the story that Lou was just talking about with the young man in the, in the store with the vodka um, and then his nephew with the gun. With serotonin levels right now dropping because of the uncertainty of where people are at, especially not only with young men, but middle-aged men, um, serotonin, serotonin levels are going to go down. That means, well, vitamin D3 is probably the most important thing to keep people developing um, a more positive outlook and also the secretion of serotonin. And then in young men, whoever's high in neuroticism, well, the big five personality traits. You have agreeableness, openness, neuroticism, um, and disagreeableness. Well, the, the high in neuroticism, and if there's personal, if there are personality disorders there like with PTSD or bipolar disorder, that's gonna cause a lot of problems with, with with the trauma units because when there are triggers with people at home, um that leads to a lot of a lot of uncertainty. I used to see That being one of the biggest problems um, that even today we're really, really not focusing on, Um, uh, like uh, borderline personality disorder within the family system um, and then the cycle, because it's, I mean, the evidence would show that it actually moves on in a cycle within families if it's not treated and dealt with. Now, the vitamin D3 part. Um, I see as a very important part of telling people to keep using because it's not just about being in the sun. When we sleep, even if we're getting a couple of hours a night rest, I mean, all the evidence and empirical data would show that the vitamin B, vitamin D3, it, it really helps to heal the body. And that's, that's the main vitamin we need. And a lot of people don't not, not only use that, but they also, they're not out right now. And then with the, with the drop in, the uncertainty and those types of brain chemicals that are needed to keep people feeling purposeful within society, um, those areas are, are I think, where we could start focusing on. And, and and then with workers, I don't know if I'm sure with the experts here on the panel, the personality types that are high in extroversion and who deal with negative emotions better are going to be able to somewhat, Uh, have adrenaline, but the ones who put on a persona who are introverts who need time alone to heal because a lot of people, a lot of introverts work regularly in systemized environments, but they actually need to be home and they need to be away from people to recharge and they don't really tell people because they put on a different type of personality. I think, I think if we could, if you can could, you could make those differentiation from us, from a simple screening process, like, well, who identifies as an introvert and an extrovert? Because then you'll be able to know, well, who needs to be alone for a little bit to recharge, like away from people? Because introverts, um, they really do need to be away from people. And if they're working in the front line, they are the ones that are going to be suffering. The extroverts are going to be fine because they actually gain energy from people. Those areas I think are very important if you look at like where you can less stress on.
0: Oh, thanks, man. Anybody want to comment on that? Jane, I'd love to jump in for
7: a second and just, uh, give a little perspective, um, from sort of a young person who's dealt with, uh, very, very many friends who have, uh, dealt with mental health issues and, uh, have been addicts. I'm 25. I know, I think seven or eight people who have overdosed, including, uh, 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 some very close friends, uh, a former CTO of mine and a, and a close uh, uh, working relationship and 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 have been sort of uh, surrounded by uh, uh, this sort of stuff my whole life. Um, I think there's a, a few things looking at it as a young person, at least in my eyes, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I, I'd say I'm an advocate. And I think it's, uh, first of all, as a young person looking at addiction, I think it's one of the it it's the it's the one thing that people don't talk about look you know, you know people talk a lot about the environment and and how how you know the the big issues that that uh climate change uh poses in the future uh and now but i think if you look at young people i think addiction is probably killing more young people than just about anything else at least in the united states and and it's something that's not talked about uh nearly enough and and uh, and I think that might come from a couple of different things. I, I think there's some, uh, a variety of research that points to a few different ways to really start to tackle this. I know um, uh, uh, the stigma is a big piece. I think uh, AA and NA have probably been two of you know, the most effective way of combating addiction uh, uh, in the long run. But it's also breeded a culture of um, anonymity. Uh, Which I think um, needs to be addressed, and I think uh, there there certainly needs to be you know every politician needs to be addressing ways, especially amongst young people, to break the stigma, for sure. And and I really think there there hasn't been a a a coalition. You know, I think uh, you could point to Greta Thunberg uh, with with climate change right now as as the overarching face uh, of climate change uh, amongst young people. I, I don't think there is that same. Uh, coalition uh, that's been built around uh, addiction and mental health uh, in this country particularly addiction and I think the uh, when when I look at it I see it in three ways I see pre-treatment treatment treatment, and and community reintegration the the pre part has to do with I think breaking the stigma it has to do with understanding who's gone through childhood traumas Uh, uh, there's research uh, you know, I read uh, uh, the Nassau County executive's uh, uh, plan for for combating opioid addiction, and it directly pointed to uh, childhood traumas. And the more childhood traumas there are, the, the greater chance there is of, of uh, being addicted to drugs and, and eventually overdosing. Um, and, and how we're addressing those things, I think there's uh, probably changes that need to to, ha- be, to happen in our education system. Uh, there's education that needs to happen for parents. Uh, uh, and and there's a whole swath of, of different, I think, legislative issues that probably need to happen. Uh, I think uh, healthcare should, or, or your health insurance should uh, universally cover. And it, and it affects the people who probably need it the most is, is not being able to, uh, I mean, top treatment centers are, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and not everyone can afford them. Uh, I think there's just a lot of, uh, issues. I, I mean, I was talking to a friend who, who runs a club in the city, and was talking about trying to pass legislation to make sure that everybody in in bars and clubs in in the United, or at least in New York, can administer Narcan, right? Um, and and so there's a, I think a whole bunch of uh, different issues from education to to just um, just really a whole bunch of different issues that need to be addressed, even even to what opioids are prescribed. I, I had two friends who who got addicted to opioids from being prescri- prescribed drugs after they uh, had injuries. Right. And these are, you know, young men. And so uh, there's probably a whole swath of issues. And I think one of the the most challenging things for me is there's been uh, to my knowledge, no real big public facing voice uh, and, and coalition that's advocating for a wide range of legislative changes and, um, and changes of the way that we address this as a society. Uh, And and that's, you know, there's a lot, again, I'm not an expert, I'm an advocate, and I think there's a lot of people who are really smart who would know better uh, than me. But, uh, you know, I think one of the major issues I see is that we're not loud enough and people don't address this for what it is, which is a a disease and one of the largest uh, public health crisis of our time.
0: I agree with all you said. I mean, you know, just to kind of refocus this back on COVID-19, though, I think you are going to see a surge in patients, right, and addictions coming from this. And look, there's already a whole swath of existing problems leading up to this. It's now how do we uh, start treating the existing patients, but also the people that are also using this as their traumatic moment. That's also going to be the onset um, for future problems. That is something like, I don't know, I think like going back to that initial question of, you know, how do these people that are you know, typically living dual lives, right? I mean, if you are a stay-at-home mom or dad, and your kids go off to school and, you know, that's when you're able to do the drugs, the alcohol, the sex addiction, whatever it might be, um, that outlet isn't there right now. Just like there's, this, there's not an outlet for kids um, to decompress and do what they normally would do. That uh, is going to also have a traumatic effect and a staying power, which, which needs to be addressed. And I don't, I don't know if any of the panelists want to chat on that and pick up where we left off a bit and also talk to some of Michael's points about, you know, this, this advocacy, the lack of, uh, you know, kind of a cheerleader for addiction. I think as Joe was saying coming out of this, you know, I probably have, might have a lot more attention. And Lou was saying, you know, there's yeah. a lot of capital thrown at this for 9-11. Um, you know, maybe we'll see some of those traits come forward. But I think to Joe's point, you know, maybe what we'll see is that since this is affecting the masses and, you know, business professionals, you know, stand-up parents and good students that, you know, maybe it'll get the attention this time.
2: So can, let me just comment a little bit on what Michael said. You're, Michael, you're 100% correct. There is not enough public advocacy um, with addiction. It's a strange thing right so when people survive cancer they march in the park they do fundraising they wear a pink ribbon you know they get their families to do stuff when people survive addiction they don't really do very much part of it is because of the culture of anonymity which people think is a violation if they're public about their own recovery but also that there's not the advocacy whether you're impacted or you're not impacted first of all we all are right so everybody addiction is everybody's problem because it's such a wide-reaching thing in the culture and it's so damaging to so many people and so many families um so but you don't have to have parkinson's to to be an advocate for people with parkinson's Um, you know my dad would say well you don't have to wear a bra to sell one so you know we all have a stake in this and we all have I, i hope my hope is your generation that does a better job with this than my generation or previous generations. The fact that the top policymaker maker for um, addiction uh, in America is generally a general or a law enforcement uh, official is just wrong. It's just a wrong thing. It should be a doctor, it should be a social worker, it should be a panel of people who know what they're doing because we can make this better. The science is progressing, the culture is lagging. And so maybe it's your generation that will do a better job. The other thing is that whole thing, those barriers to people accessing good care need to be removed. And my solution to remove that is a 10 cent tax on beer, wine, and 25 cent tax on distilled spirits per unit. Everybody can go to rehab for the asking, we can eliminate the insurance fraud of the private rehab industry. California has not raised taxes on alcohol since 1993. You know, that, that is wrong. These problems are solvable. I, again, I always get myself into trouble. But I thought, you know, when, when I went through training as a social worker, I was sort of told, well, the goal of being a social worker is to make yourself obsolete, right? You're supposed to try to solve the problem. You know, yes, pull people out of the ditch, but also what about the ditch that people keep falling into? I don't think we're ever gonna solve the intoxication or mental health problem, but we can do so much better. And it really is a mindset of shifting it to healthcare and public health policy, which is one of the reasons that I advocate for a national healthcare system because it means that healthcare is then data driven. It's not driven by a, a profit margin. Um, and yeah, you're a young guy. You've lost friends. You've experienced your own trauma. And you know, that's like I always tell tell young people: Look, you guys, why aren't you sitting in front of city hall? Like why aren't you why aren't you sitting there camped out demanding to be heard? Why aren't you sitting in front? I'm too old is why I'm not doing it, but I'll buy you pizza if you do it. You know, I'll send pizza to your tents if you're gonna go up there and rabble rouse. You know, that's how things change. That's how social movements start. HIV would be a problem if there wasn't act up. You're too young to remember all this. Um but it used to be a death sentence, and it's not any longer. And that was because of the social movement behind it. And so, yes, I hope, I hope that you, you, you lead the way, man. I don't know, you got friends, get them out there.
0: No, knowing Michael, he will lead the way that he is working on that. So I, I think you'll hear more yeah. from him soon coming up on that. And Michael, you can probably share with the group. I can pass some stuff around, some of the stuff you're working on.
7: Yeah, once we uh, once we're we're out, allowed to aggregate in front of city city hall again, maybe. Okay. We'll all up.
2: right. Well, <laughs> right. I don't mean do it now. I mean, you know, look, this has been going on for a long time.
7: No, but by the change way,
2: change overnight. But that is one of the big things is that nobody's rec nobody recruits the recovery vote, right? Nobody says I got to get the recovery vote or I can't win this election. You know, nobody is. Um, you know, Martin O'Malley, who was the governor of Maryland, raised taxes on beer, I don't know, like five cents or something, and he got $300 million. And the money went to the disability lobby, which, uh, look, I'm all for people in wheelchairs having the services and help that they need too. But why didn't it go to recovery? And the reason no, it didn't go to recovery is because we don't have anybody banging and rabble rousing and saying, well, no, 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 hold the phone. That's our money. We're going to start treatment programs in prisons and schools and so on and so forth. So that's...
7: I mean, from a media angle, it's a, it's a perfect sort of take. And, and just to go off your point really quickly about the law enforcement, I, I think, you know, uh, you, the, one of the issues here that I see and not to, you know, again, I know this is sort of COVID focused, but uh, when you don't have the right people at the table, you can't get the right solutions, right? So... Um, Correct. From a law enforcement perspective, I think you saw that policy, uh, which was arrest as many, you know, or just arrest people, right? Arrest people, arrest the dealers, well, arrest
2: black and brown people. There's yeah, always right. been legal drug right. use for white people.
7: Right, exactly. And, and uh, again, probably a, a lack of having all the right people at the table making uh, uh, decisions on, sol- uh, on solutions and policies. Uh, so, so I agree with you there. And I think a media angle. First of all, on that tax is a very strong way to go. By the way, I totally agree.
0: With that. Yep. And um, Adam, oh, yeah. Adam, and Eric, I know you guys are fighting a lot on the veteran side of this uh, equation, right? Because you're you're seeing a lot of activity spiking. Um. You know, what what are some of the things you guys are seeing from COVID nineteen or generally? Yeah, speaking? from an advocacy perspective to to bettering the situation, but like this whole concept around addiction and yeah, how how you kind of do this pull through.
5: Yeah, so uh, it, it has been getting a lot of legs recently, uh, just like the general population, but specifically for veterans, uh, now that data is publicized, especially the suicide rates and uh, they can actually determine which population of veterans is the highest likelihood uh, to die by suicide, it really is starting to drive that advocacy uh, side of it. So. Uh, the number, I'd say the number one priority for VA is to reduce the suicide rate. Uh, today, there are 20 veterans who die by suicide each day. Um, the highest percentage of, of uh, population is actually the young adult. I believe it's 18 to 25, which is new uh, in 2017. Those are the, that's the data. So there is a lot that's going on. There's a lot of money that's being spent. It's just they don't know where to spend it and how to do it. What's the best way? Um, and so they, we are partnered with the VA, and our partnership is to try to get upstream. So, for example, for suicide, a lot of the, uh, the money is being spent on PTSD and me- serious mental illness. We specialize in co-occurring and substance use disorder. So they're uh, investing in us, so to speak, so that we can get ahead of it. And so before it turns into a crisis point where... Someone dies by suicide. We can treat them for a self-esteem disorder.
0: And are you seeing any more government dollars open up, just given what's going on with the current crisis? Knowing that this yeah. is kind of on the onset.
5: Yes, um, absolutely. Unfortunately, again, everyone's drinking from a fire hose, so they're trying to figure out how to allocate the funds best. Um, but there is—they—they they know what is expected. I uh, spoke to the national, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health yesterday, and after every. Uh, pandemic or epidemic. So after the, uh, I didn't know this, after the uh, flu in 1918, after the Great Depression, uh, five or six years from that date, whatever that trauma was, there's a gigantic spike in suicide. And so the federal government knows that they have the data. They realize they need to act now so that they can prevent that five or six years from now.
0: And, And Lou and Barb, on the state level, are you guys seeing increased funds through your facilities?
1: Well, not not directly, you know, to mental health, uh, you know, just yet, because right now, the psychologist that we're supposed to do everything for Bono, and and then we help each other. So there's a lot of volunteering time. But once this starts to calm down, if the resources are not there, you know, all the support that is scrambling right now is going to also disappear. But I think there will be a lot of money from government, from foundations that uh, is going to come up.
4: Mm. There are so for domestic violence services, there's some loosening of regulations around the use of money in order to make it more flexible and therefore more usable. um, That's happening around government funds, but there are um, also a number of foundations that are stepping up, um, pulling together uh, resources that shelter programs in particular can access in order to keep their doors open, keep their beds, bed numbers high um, in order to be able to respond effectively. And yeah, I, I also maybe. just wanted to, if I, yeah, go ahead.
0: sorry, <laughs> sorry
4: go ahead. just add a couple of things because we, you know, domestic violence isn't typically thought of as a mental health issue. There certainly is an intersection, as Joe was saying, um, with uh, substance abuse, drug and alcohol abuse, um, but it's not the primary cause. Um, so I, you know, how how to fit into your conversation, I'm not exactly sure. But there were a couple of things that I wanted to be sure to say. One of them is just to point out that. Um, that the numbers are sort of irrefutable that one out of every three women is going to experience domestic violence at some point in their lives. Um, And so that's not just the person who's staying at home um, that we might typically think about um, that's struggling with this issue right now. So for Lou, a lot of um, the nurses, the doctors, the staff that you're working with are also potentially struggling with what kind of violence might be happening at home. and So I just think we have to broaden our view about who we typically think about um, as victims of domestic violence or perpetrators of domestic violence so that we we realize that it's not, um, that our stereotypes around it may be false and that it could be our colleague, our neighbor, our, our friend, and to keep our mind open to that. And the other thing I just wanted to mention was that um, whether or not we were talking really early on about, about cases where perhaps physical violence hadn't, Um, been experienced in the relationship before. And I just wanted to be sure um, to point out how important it is that no matter what the history of violence might have been um, in a relationship, that if someone is feeling in fear for whatever reason, emotional, physical, (laughs) um, sexual, whatever form that might be taking, that reaching out to help is so, so important, whether that be a 911 call if the violence is imminent or if it's to a local shelter program or a national crisis line. Um, the domestic violence community is really doing everything in its power to step up um, and to be available.
0: How do you recommend that people get away from this from a bit, right? So people that are in abuseful abusive situations, like look, maybe there's a track record of it, maybe there wasn't, um, but when it happens again, or if it keeps happening in a situation where you're kind of locked in, what's the best thing to do?
4: You know, the, the best thing to do right now, given that we are so isolated, is to, um, is to reach out to the services that are available. So uh, most domestic violence programs operate by crisis line, which people typically think of as by phone. Um, but many, many are now also available online through chat and through text. So it, um, can, it, it might be a safer route Um, to be able to text someone as opposed to make a phone call that could be overheard by your abusive partner. The other thing is that any time you can break away for even a short period of time. Um, So that might be we need to go to the grocery store we're completely out of milk or (laughs) um, whatever the the case may be you know an an important um, COVID (laughs) um, uh, reason to leave the house uh, to take advantage of that and to be able to Talk to a neighbor, talk to a good friend, a family member who might be able to provide some support. And just
0: real quick, what are like, maybe are there like four or five steps that happen once I initiate that call that I should expect? So if I'm being abused, when I make that call, what what do I know is coming if I do that?
4: So if the, if the call is made to 911, then obviously uh, police will arrive at your home. Um, if you're calling out to a domestic violence service organization, that, you, that will be in your control. So the person on the other end of the line is there to listen, uh, to hear what the concerns or issues might be, to hear um, what your needs are, and then to help you meet those needs. So chances are they're going to engage you in some safety planning. So if you can't leave the house right now, what are the ways that you can keep yourself and your children safe? um, Or are more likely to keep yourself and your children safe? Um, Putting together a plan for needing to leave if that's absolutely necessary. Um, So so again, focus on safety uh, and being able to meet the needs of that individual in whatever way they deem fit.
0: Got it, I just wanna be cognizant of time, but one of the last things I just wanna touch on For the business professionals out there that are literally watching (laughs) their businesses go to zero in many cases, just literally overnight, the amount of anxiety, um, you know, this work life balance that's destroyed, the lack of release mechanisms, the unemployment that's going on and the layoffs that they actually might have to do. So they're actually physically ruining lives by making the call to let people know that either being furloughed or laid off or just shutting down the business in general. You know, I think, Joe, you mentioned it. look, people are going to the store. They can get alcohol if they have a choice, maybe grab marijuana if it's legal in the state. For other people that have a, a, you know, substance abuse, they might not be able to get access to whatever product they needed right now. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things in the mix. But from a pure business professional standpoint, what are some of the best advice to deal with some of these situations? I'm sure you guys are starting to get calls.
3: This is Adam. Let me just, I don't know if anybody on the call has read the book, The Tribe. Do you know it, anyone? So if you don't mind a quick homework assignment, because it's about 75, 100 pages, it's easy reading. Um, Sebastian Junger, a Marine, wrote a book called The Tribe. And The Tribe uh, is basically an explanation as to why, active duty personnel, when returning to civilian life, have so much of a difficulty in reintegrating. And the reason is because when they're in the military, there is somebody always by their side who has their back. And when they go to the civilian world, that um, safety net is no longer there. So what we try to do when we are counseling our, our patients is to create that safety net for them and, and Joe, uh, sorry, and Michael, um, your, your comments really hit home to me. My children are older than you are, um, and they have had uh, similar losses of friends who have uh, had substance abuse and been unable to control it. If you are able, you personally, each of you, all of us are able to create that link to somebody where they believe that we are their safety net, You've gone a long way to opening the door to what Barbara said, to find somebody to reach out to, to give you the, the comfort that, that somebody has your back. And it, it sounds a little almost pedantic, and I don't mean it to be, just the opposite. The most simple um, exercise you can do is to reach somebody personally and let them know that you care. And, and I, I suspect Joe has been dealing with this throughout his entire career, but it works. And, and the only limitation you have is the amount of time
0: in the day. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things I wrote down, you know, as as a business operator, you know, one thing that might be lacking in a lot of people haven't looked at is this this whole concept of mentorship uh, that's maybe been long lost or just never really engaged. Right and, um, you know, that I don't think you can really understand how valuable that is until it's not there, right? And, and then you really need someone to turn to because oh, let's face it. Look, I deal a lot with a, a venture capitalists. Uh, I deal a lot with entrepreneurs. I'll be honest with you as an entrepreneur, if I'm an operator and you're not like you, if you're just a guy who or gal who is, you know, choosing people like me or choosing that entrepreneur, betting on the jockeys, they would say it. They can't really help much when it comes to figuring out what to do with the business operations at the end of the day because they've never really run a business, right? And there's a whole different mentality. When you see the ones, the investors that have, it's, it's night and day in terms of the amount of assistance and help that they can actually bring forth as a value add. I don't know if there's a network or something that, you know, community-wise, you, you just across the business landscape, if people are willing to step up to be mentors to some of these either small businesses or even startups that have shut down, literally or vaporized overnight. Um, just to kind of cope through this, especially people that have lived through maybe two thousand eight. I mean, Pam's a warrior by herself; has lived through a lot in terms of business, and you know, maybe she can let's you know shed some light on you know what have you done when you turned to hard times and faced moments like this.
8: Through my journey through entrepreneurship, through my journey through being a woman in long term recovery, you know, I have you know as Shane knows, I've had these things, and so you know, it the thing that scares me the most in this whole process that everybody's in, I don't care if that's long-term, short-term, early-term, or still an active addict, right, in your problem, right, is that isolation is counterintuitive to everything. And our isolation words are, 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 are challenged right now, right? You know, while we can all chat and be here, right, it's still, I can listen, I can pretend I'm listening, right? But how do you know you're present, right? So, this, this opportunity for us to all connect vis a a Zoom or video chatting, it's fine, but there's still that risk of what that, you know, that being present in the moment and not being present in the moment. And so I think for anything and the challenges of um, hitting different kinds of bottoms in different parts of, of, of life is how do you get those people engaged now and, and have that presence of mind and body, you know, and connection. And I think we all have to talk about that. And I think we have to engage in our networks and that and use people that are experts in the field, but take impact from people who, you know, are engaged in life and entrepreneurship and, and, and maybe, you know, the longest term person can struggle. So um, I don't know if that's answering the question, Shane, but I think the biggest challenge to whatever that is in, in, in addiction, I mean, the, um, You know, I mean, you think about Barb's world of the people that she helps and they're living in a problem where kids could escape or or people could escape these things on a daily basis and now they're forced to be there, right? You know, you're sitting in in early recovery and you're supposed to be with people, right? Or you're somebody that thinks they have a problem and you've been isolated and now are you isolated or do you have a friend like your husband or your family or your kids, right? I think the whole, we've shooken up the whole system and- I think that this is the time where we create more than um, social connections. I think this is the time that as entrepreneurs, some of us on the phone are also working with those that treat people and figuring out this is our opportunity to create entrepreneurship. This is our time to create real solutions that are tools outside of just nothing against anybody in the mental health area, because it's, it's those people combined with entrepreneurship, combined with those things, that we have to start thinking outside the box of how do we use this as an opportunity? And I'll stop <laughs> yeah, talking.
2: just weigh, let me just weigh in briefly. I think that as a business owner or an entrepreneur, if you're in a management level, it really is about setting a tone, leading by example, and creating a culture where people feel safe to address their mental health needs. Um, and that can look like a bunch of different things you know, for sure. I think that the the hurdle and the stigma of having something and asking for help is one of the biggest parts of it, um, to be sure. And again, I always wonder about the parity between physical and mental health. If you run a baseball team and your, your starting pitcher says my elbow hurts, everything stops, he sees the orthopedist, there's MRIs, there's personal trainers, you know, there's everything else in the world. Um, but they never really, you don't ever really ask people how they are. Uh, I, I, I was, um, when I was a grad assistant in, in the social work program, the university of Illinois, I was a grad assistant football coach. And I tried to sort of merge those two worlds. I kept trying to convince the football team that they needed a social worker. And I still believe they do. And they thought I was out of my mind. And I was like, "Really? There's 120 boys on this team from all kinds of situations and pregnant girlfriends and everything else." So I think it really is a top-down message that we're not going to quit on you. If you have an issue in life, you don't need to be afraid to ask for help or to reveal that. Self-disclosure is one way that people um, are able to avoid a crisis situation if they can, if they feel safe that they can go come forward before anything else. I. Done, one of the things I did was work with NYPD. They have an unbelievable um, EAP. They have a great employee assistance program. None of them use it. It's like, well, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you calling the EAP? Why aren't you finding out what your benefits are so that you can access that? And it literally is that sort of hurdle of shame. And so I think it's um, you know it's an important thing for business owners which is what, and, and I have been getting this question: like, what do we do? We're going to lose employees. Who knows what's happening? How can we, how can we address this? And that's one of the first things: is you know, know your options, um, and and don't be afraid to engage in them. and And that's got to come from, that's got to come from the whole culture of of the organization. It can't just be a lip service. Yeah, I think that was brilliantly said. I think
8: there's an opportunity. Oh, sorry, Michael. I didn't mean to talk over you. I, I was just going to say quickly, but this is where there's an opportunity to engage different corporations, right? Because you've got, you know, you know, you've got a lot of people at home, you've got different things. So I think that the byproduct of this will be an opportunity to have more mental health conversations with employers, not just entrepreneurs, but bigger companies and all that type of stuff, the, the longer this goes on. So I, I think it's an opportunity for mental health to become um, less of a stigma, even not in just a small company, but a bigger company. And give resources to them. Sorry, Michael. I've talked over you. No,
7: no, uh, it's it's great, and I, I think uh, first, Joe, uh, the leadership thing, especially for places like the NYPD, who who I, I, I met with recently, and and other organizations that frequently deal with trauma. I think that uh, it's uh, brilliantly said, and it, it is a, a it's about the culture that's created. Uh, uh, second, I think um, uh, Pam. Uh, you know, I've, 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 dealt with a lot of friends who, who are also in recovery and are very, very close friends. And I found that, you know, uh, to the first part of what you were saying before about presence, I found that spirituality and, 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 and meditation have been massive tools for them to, to, to aid them in their recovery. And I think that that's the fact that that's not taught and per- pushed in every school, you know, from, you know, an early age on kids is like, a, uh, I mean, it's night and day when, when you learn meditation, you meditate and you, you have that spirituality uh, with it. I mean, I think it's, I've seen that be hugely effective for more than a, a couple of people. And then the last thing I was going to ask just, uh, I guess, selfishly to some of these people on the phone, I, have you know, I've dealt again, uh, you know, I've had a lot of the conversations with close friends, uh, confronting them. I guess confronting is the word, but uh, about their addictions. Um, and that's always been not only a question I've been asked, but a, a question, uh, something I've dealt with personally, and I've never known what the really the right way to do it. And I've done a little bit of research on it, but I've probably been in that situation five or six times where, you know, you're, you're saying to a very close friend of yours, Hey, you know, you, you have an issue. And, you know, as the close friend, it's, you know, it's always a bit hard to, to figure out, how to address that? So, if there's anyone just selfishly that can, you know, answer that question for me or anyone else on the phone who might, may have or may be in that situation at some point,
2: it's a real question. Well, I, look, I Michael, I'm if you, a lot of that. So, yep. Sorry, um, Michael. Uh, Michael, if you figured out that, like, that's one of the biggest things. <laughs> like, what do you do about somebody else's drug use? So, it's a really hard thing for many, many, many people. You know, I always think it's important to remember, well, because I hear it a lot. I hear about how crazy somebody's boyfriend is because they're a cocaine addict. And I always think, well, I don't know, dating one seems pretty crazy, too. I mean, we can only do what we can do um, about that. And you can express your truth. And you have to accept that people have the right to self-determine and they get to make decisions, even if the people around them don't like the decisions, you know, which is really hard. For sure.
3: Can I, can I just add practically, I'm with you, uh, Joe, but can I just add practically speaking, um, Michael, what I would do is I would, in a positive way, challenge your friend and say, do me a favor, just go to, go to one therapy session, hear what the issues are, hear what you're facing objectively. I'm here to support you, but I'm not a therapist. Go talk to somebody, just try it once and see if that, moves your needle. Um, More often than not, that is the hardest, the hardest step is the first step.
0: The other thing too, I guess that's that's coming out here, and this is something I've thought about for a long time, and I've discussed this with a couple of uh, venture buddies of mine, but behavioral health in general has been an area that has not seen a lot of innovation in tech. And we talk about this general concept of wellness that you see going through, you know, various corporate programs. We talk about various schools that have them, you know, when you enroll in college, you know, that your access to these resources, but nothing really addresses these topics head on. Part of the thing I keep thinking too is like if, if people can come to a realization for themselves that they might actually have a problem, that seems to be one of the best ways to get through to somebody. Um, whether that's done through, I don't know. I've seen some apps where you know you answer some questions and it kind of shows you where you might be on a matrix or a spectrum. Um, helping you kind of get to the own conclusion. Wow, maybe I need to go talk to somebody. I just haven't seen a lot of those tools and resources. I would love to probably do a follow-up discussion and brainstorm with a couple of venture capitalists and maybe some entrepreneurs of ways to repurpose some of the tech that is already out there. Cause I, I don't think. Um, the whole thing has to be recreated from scratch. I think the infrastructure and tools already exist out there. It's just the content and maybe the sequencing of information needs to be put in a certain way so the outcomes can be delivered directly to the individual and then they can decide their course of action. But also marry that up to a support network like you guys are all saying that seems to be one of the key crucial factors here. Um, It'd be interesting to see just given now that we're all all of a sudden getting very uh, in tune with technology because we have to just yeah, by the- sheer necessity. And I always said the best innovations come from necessity, not abundance. And yeah. right here and there, you saw Lou say we had to drop, but it would have taken them three years to do what they've done in three weeks at Columbia. Right. And I, don't, I think a lot of industries have been forced to do it. And I, I actually think it's one of the best things coming out of this. There is a silver lining here, right? And i actually think maybe there is a way to kind of band together and look also repurpose and create new jobs because addiction is going to be probably one of the biggest things to deal with coming out of this and mental health so it's going to open up a whole new hopefully category of investments and opportunities to invest in and, and businesses that can actually thrive that actually help people and make an impact on communities
4: Can yeah, I sorry, just- quick.
7: so right off that chain you know uh, just to validate your point the one <laughs> You yeah, know, the people, the, the few people who have fully recovered that I know very, very well, it's always been because they have came to that conclusion themselves. They were the ones who went to seek help. Uh, it wasn't because their parents told them to do it. It wasn't because their friends told them to do it. It's because they told themselves that they need to do it. And that's, um, I, I if you, if there's a way to help people, I think, and again, I'm not an expert to, to come to that conclusion. That's what I've seen uh, as the only thing that's really worked.
2: Michael, that's the really hard part is that, that coercion, um, leveraging people, it can be successful to a degree. Ultimately, for it to be sustainable, it has to be an, an internal desire for change, yep. right? And so that's the thing. It has to come from the individual. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. It's a very big difference to have people asking for help than to have it forced upon them or acquiesced to it or manipulated into it or you know those kinds of things. That tends to end up being they're going to wait till the heat gets off. You know, they're going to go through the motions. It's very hard when people get rehab savvy, they know the drill. That's one of my big issues is the, the, it's like the diet industry where the profit margin is in the 95% failure. And that's, that's a tragic situation. So look, you know, this has been going on since the cavemen fermented something and Mrs. Caveman got mad. So it's not going to, it's not going it's to, it's, it probably is one of the hardest parts of it. You know, it's one of the hardest pieces of it, of how do you engage people in treatment? It's one of the reasons that I'm an ardent harm reductionist because there are lots of people who cannot conceive that their lives are, are banished to church basements and bad coffee, never to have any kind of fun again. But there are people who are willing to have the conversation about what can we get rid of that's harmful to you? Like, can we take death off the table or can we can we not have HIV and hep C in addition to a heroin addiction? You know, so can we commit to using sterilized equipment if we're going to be an injectable drug user? So part of it is I, you know, I don't know. I mean, sometimes when you want to engage somebody, you don't want to bite off more than they can chew or, you know, and like like uh, Adam said, well, how about just an appointment? you know, how about a reconnaissance mission, maybe just be open to the possibility of something rather than that forced. I don't know. I start, sometimes I think rehab, it gets to be like gay conversion therapy where it's this mandate of this very specific way that people are supposed to live and it's not sustainable. So, um, you know, that's a hard, that's a hard thing. And again, I hope your generation is open to the expansion of how recovery is defined and how the metrics of success are are available. There's lots of ways to see that a life is improving. Disentangling from the judicial system, completing education, holding a job. There's lots of ways. It can't just be the clean or dirty urine screen. And when people are browbeaten into that system of, we wanna see a, a clean urine screen, that's a data point that doesn't really tell the whole story. So I don't know. I think I always think start small. If the story starts, it can end in a different place. We don't know where the story is going to end, but we know. We know, and I know you know because I know your world. Dead's dead. People aren't going to find any recovery if they're dead. So you got to you got to give it to them in little pieces that they can that they can manage and metabolize. <laughs>
8: I want to add one thing from the, from, you know, I think what this opportunity that puts us in a unique opportunity where it's impacting so many parts of mental health. Right. But I think what comes out of it, I mean, most of the work is advocacy. It's, it's mental health people. It's advocacy. It's, it's, you know, the foundation that I chair for global recovery. Right. Well, we struggle to get money and we struggle to get, you know, donations, more people give money to cats and dogs. Right. And so, but I think as a result of, of some of the tools that people have been forced to use, Right, um, from Zooming and meetings and all that kind of stuff, there is the opportunity for all of us to think about the commerce that can be related. Right, and I know we all want to talk about it in terms of, um, you know, you know, the the help and the and the and the wellness and and the mental and the doctors and all that, which is all critical, critical, critical. Right, but this is showing a big gap in to so your point shane which you, asked, you know is showing a big gap in the tools and the accessibility and what people need that we have for everything else right so you know whether we call it recovery commerce instead of e-commerce and our commerce right but there is a commerce that can be built around this and it's okay to say that that's okay to make some money doing it we don't all have to get rich doing it but you know when all you're waiting on is donations or doctors or health and no disrespect to anybody that's in that field right You know, that's not accessibility. That's not digitalization. That's not some of these things. So I think that we use this as an opportunity to combine those things that are important with tech or with other things that we have available to us. And how do we make commerce out of this that people will start to use? Because we're going to see the longer this takes, the gap in that part of availability of commerce to people that we need to help. Yeah. Look, at the end
0: of the day, it's, there's nothing wrong with having a great profitable business standing from this. This is a massive opportunity. There's a giant market. I don't think anybody has to be feeling ashamed that um, there's a business here because look, our entire insurance system, our entire medical system, everything is, is built on milking, whatever you can. This is actually helping people get better. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, Joe, you mentioned, uh, you know, and, and I thank you for all the older faces on this call. We always say, I, 20 years ago, I heard, oh, you got to be the generation to do this because basically we fucked up and we're not willing to do it anymore. That's basically what I'm saying. But it's yeah. <laughs> a time where, look, we have capable individuals. I take you know, people like Adam who had very successful careers on Wall Street and said, you know what? I haven't really done anything with my life, but this is going to be my legacy by choice. I'm willing to take a stand. I'm willing to, to build something real. And this is going to help a lot of people along the way. I know Kelly, who's on the calls, worked on very impactful things. Joe, just the way you talk, I know you're a stand-up guy. Barb, same thing. Pam, I known you for years. Um, it takes us to move mountains. I think if we rely on just keep passing the baton, you know, it's going to be uh, you know 100 years later before anything really gets happened. I I can point you to a video back in 1992 where where a young girl, 13 years old, was addressing the UN, asking about why is it okay that um, you know, when I'm young, you're telling me not to lie, to cheat, to steal. You're telling me all these basic things not to do. But the minute you guys grow up as adults, you go and do those exact same things in the office, in our legislation, in our government. Why are all those values thrown out the window? So where is that accountability and that responsibility? But we here, people who have built successful businesses can see the opportunity, bundle the right technology and do something about it. And guys like Michael can go park themselves out on on the street, go be the voice for government, eat pizza while they're down at city hall and make shit happen, right? But at the end of the day, there's going to have to be people who know how to build real solutions and businesses to address this. And that's the power of of capitalism, right? That's the power of impact investing. That's the power of having standalone solutions that don't rely on donors every December at a gala.
2: Yeah, I, look, I agree with you hundred percent. I didn't mean to suggest I'm I'm done and passing the baton. I just you know, I always encourage the younger. I'm always amazed how in one generation they're so nonchalant about who's gay. Like that used to be a thing yeah. in when when I was in college. Like, oh my God, so and so they might be gay, or you know, one of my roommates was like the eagle scouted for being gay. These these kids are like. like left-handed right-handed like it just doesn't even impact them in a way that it did and so i think that that's sort of my encouragement is look look your generation can do better not that we're not that we're done or throwing in the towel just uh as of yet but and i agree with you look we we have to build an economy if there isn't an economy you know we're never going to get anywhere with the substance uh use problem you know and and so yeah i mean and I spoke to these kids at Stanford and they were, at, they were MBA students and they were like, um, well, how do we do, how do we, how do we fix this? And I was like, don't you go to Stanford? I don't know. I was hoping you were going to tell me how we fix this. You know, so I don't, no. I'm, I'm all ears to anybody. Who has any, no, so any look, one of my
0: greatest missions, right? Like I said, I work with a lot of different entrepreneurs. I work with a lot of students. Um, I want to find the things that work and I want to spin them up as fast as possible everywhere because there's too much competing and not enough co-opting. There's a lot of lessons learned. There's a lot of information that's just not being shared. And there's a lot of people just break off and do their own thing because they feel like, Oh, I have a better way to do it. Or there's an ego involved. But the one thing that's ticking is time, right? And there's not a luxury anymore. And I think coming out of this, look, we're going to be faced with some of the biggest challenges I, I know I'm never going to see in my lifetime. I think most of you've ever seen your lifetime, unless you live through the great depression and the world war, Like this is basically that because like I said in the prior calls, look, the floods are going to come, the hurricanes are going to come on top of all this. There's going to be massive disaster. This is a guarantee. This is going to be the world's most expensive and valuable fire drill ever done with COVID-19. And it's going to show us where all the gaps are and what we need to address. And we need to get our shit together and get it done because they're real lives that matter. There's real uh, stake for the environment. And there's a real hit on the economy. And now, when all those things kind of happen, that's that's when we're going to get the attention.
3: Shane, can I can I jump in for one one thought here? Um, and and I'm giving a psychic high five to Pam because she just said something that really triggered an idea for me. One of our programs is a corporate wellness effort to work with companies to destigmatize substance use and mental health issues. The problem there as everybody on this panel has discussed, is that if it's not coming from the CEO and the the chairman and the board, the chairwoman and the board, there is no buy-in at the junior level. What what happens, Shane, if we, instead of, of trying to start with the CEO, we did a grassroots at the venture capital firm level. What if we put together a consortium of venture capital funds who said, if we invest in you, you must have a substance use mental health program available for your uh, employees. There is no stigma. There is, we're still HIPAA, but why don't we build the grassroots at the generation that is most impacted by this? I'm happy to help you do that.
0: No, I I think we absolutely should. And, And for the younger VCs like Michael that are kind of the young and coming associates at these funds, well, let's be honest, e- even the MDs, the founders, they all have kids or loved ones. It's in their best kids, interest. Right? They're But they're just kind of on their way out. But at the same time, everyone's had their lives touched by this. But there are very easy ways to implement what you're saying and push it through like a trinet or some other PEO that's a standard HR package offering. This becomes part of your wellness package. Absolutely,
7: I love the idea. And, and just to ride off that, I mean, I, to sort of go back to an earlier point, there's a lot of moving parts to this, um, whether whether it's uh, at the corporate level, whether it's at, like, like I said, a, a buddy who runs a bar who wants to make sure that not one more life is lost because no one had, you know, Narcan in, in you know, a club or a bar, right? There is a sweeping uh, amount of, of different areas that need focus on. And, and I think that, even if you can find one person or one group that represents each of those areas that don't necessarily overlap and compete with each other, and they all come together um, uh, under a sort of uh, coalition that that can really put the put the the heat on uh, uh, on, on on legislators and um, and and VCs and, and other groups that deem that they deem can make changes. Uh, that, that's what, what I see as, uh, you know, from an advocacy point of view, needs to happen. Now, I know getting a lot of people to invest it, uh, uh, their time and, and to work together is really hard. And, may, and maybe that's why you, you need people or you need uh, a variety of different committees or you need a variety of different people who don't compete with each other but can all offer different solutions uh, along the chain. I know, Joe, you know, you, you said earlier that not, this is not a one-fits-all solution. Uh, everyone has their own thing. I, I remember a friend's uh, dad, um, uh, a friend's dad said to me, who who was a uh, went to rehab and, and hated AA and NA. He said, "I'm I'm just allergic to cocaine. I can do other drugs. I'm just allergic to cocaine." Weeping uh, coalition, different solutions, people working together, people who can put down their ego a little bit, but also people who don't compete. So you're not, you know getting people defensive and you can man a bunch of marketing pi- power behind it. You can push, uh, politicians and other people, uh, to make some changes. Uh, I mean, that seems like a, a, a way to, yeah, to right. make some
8: You also have to use, you know, it, it's, and it's okay for us not to use all the, you know, we all give our time and anybody that's in, in the field or, you know, Joe says he'll help vets or, or our foundation helps those. Right. But if you look at the demographic of a real, you know, of, of addicts, in general, if we're speaking about substance abuse, okay, they look more like me and you than they do other people, okay? And they have pocketbooks and they have commerce and they buy things and that type of stuff, right? So it's also shifting the conversation to, you know, and, and those are the people that that don't want to give their name or they they do all of that, right? But you know, I was supposed to speak at a women's recovery conference the end of this month, right? And the demographic of a woman in, in recovery sits between 45 and 60 and she makes over 100000 dollars She controls the household, she controls the money, right? So it's okay to talk about it in those contexts, right? And it's like reversing, if you think about, and I'm sure there's plenty of people on this phone call have tried to raise money for their foundation or for their cause, which relates to this, right? So you get profitable organization, those profitable organizations can have a mission because everybody wants to invest in social impact, but it's okay to be a profitable social impact. And you you, you, you build your company and you make some money, you can give that money and disperse it to these foundations and those foundations have more money and they do more things and then they get more capital
0: you, you can also flip it pam because these foundations can actually become investors in social impact enterprises that are for profit and they can actually create a self-sustaining mechanism but it also allows people to pull resources and talent i mean using use this example what exactly happened with covid right What could have been solved for $10 billion has now cost 300x that as of now with the stimulus package, right? For the cost of testing and having the right systems in place, um, look, this was an economic opportunity that was spelled out 10, 15 years ago, and nothing was really done about it, right? But we literally watched the world fall to its knees from a microscopic virus. The same thing is going to happen with addiction and mental health. Um, because the more you go through this, the more you can have better productive people leading better lives, having better families, and, and having better jobs, the better GDP and community you're going to have. I think what you're going to see from this is that there's going to be a big fallout of a capable workforce, and it's going to have an economic impact, and that by itself is probably what's going to get the attention here of why we need to fix this, and that's okay, because this, this, these are the types of smacks in the head, I think, we need yeah. as this country to wake up
2: look if i were the ceo of a startup and i spent a lot of time in san francisco so i see a lot of these young kids on their you know their scooters and whatever um and they're they are more open they're they're definitely more open to this idea but i do think that they need the mentorship to say you know what it should just be a policy everyone's in therapy we have a social worker everybody everybody's going to see somebody once a week we're all stressed we all have issues with our spouse or parents or whatever it is everybody has something to talk about and just make it like that kind of normalized everybody goes we don't have to you know that's fine i mean we all need oversight and supervision if you're a clinician and and you work in a rehab or whatever you you and and in california you have to have supervision for your licensure you know so there's a reason to do all of that and i think that you know the the because a lot of people have said oh we have we have mental health services but it's that's kind of like saying we'll come by anytime that's not the same thing as come for dinner on thursday at seven o'clock we'll see you there well the same
0: way you have a physical you should have a mental
2: health exam exactly absolutely and the same way that a lot of companies in in you know the tech areas of san francisco they all they offer gym memberships and all this stuff and that's that's great but it's not doesn't matter if you don't go you know it's not the same thing as having a personal trainer um and having an appointment to go i think that it could be it could be much much much, much better and should be part of the corporate culture of america that you know whatever i mean it's funny it, like nike i've been to the nike campus a few times and they're great about a lot of stuff on-site childcare and and run during your lunch or or lift weights or or yoga class during you know at at the end of the day or whatever it is but there's there's no mental health help there i mean other than the inherent mental health improvement from the physical improvement but you know it's it's something that that could be um it'd be a massive cultural shift but maybe this will help that happen
0: Absolutely. No, I thank you so much for joining. I know we're way over our time, but this is what happens when people get passionate and yeah, and really get into things.
2: But yeah. thanks for sticking around. Well, this I, was great. Thank you. thank you very much, Pam. I'll talk to you. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to anybody. Michael, get my, I don't know. Yeah, I got to jump know. as well, guys, but I would love to connect with, I'd you. Love to connect with you anytime. Very, very okay. important issue. For me, and so, right. Take care. We will
0: do something from this. Later, guys. Any last words from you guys? I can't thank you enough for the amount of time you spent today. And thank you.
4: Mm-hmm. Thank you as well. It's been an interesting conversation. Thanks for involving me. Hey, Shane, I know we did a few of these from a business perspective,
8: but, um, you know, this is powerful. Thank you.
4: Yeah, I
0: think we'll do a follow-up in this and, and really start looking at how we solution to this. And maybe we can get some legislators on as well. Um, you know, start a little bit of a grassroots effort because it's, it's got to start somewhere. <laughs>